Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko, and Tabison Dema. In our top stories, Somalia faces immense challenges as it emerges from two decades of civil war and Zambia mourns the death of President Michael Sata. In economics, Algeria signs oil deals with three foreign consortiums and in sports news, South Africa remembers three fallen sports heroes. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Heavy fighting has been reported around the northeastern Nigerian town of Mobe between government forces and suspected Boko Haram fighters. Several people have been killed and houses burnt down. The fighting erupted despite a recent ceasefire being declared. Residents and insurgents first overran the town of Uba in Bono State before moving to Mobe. Violence in northeastern Nigeria has surged since the government announced the ceasefire with the rebels nearly two weeks ago to pursue talks in neighboring Chad aimed at freeing more than 200 girls kidnapped by Boko Haram in April. Zambia is today holding a second day of mourning for President Michael Sata, who died in a London hospital on Tuesday. Zambian Vice President Guy Scott has been named acting president following the death of Sata. Scott, whose parents came from Scotland, becomes the first white president of an African nation since F.W. de Klerk ruled apartheid South Africa more than 20 years ago until 1994. Scott is not eligible to stand in the upcoming election as a constitutional rule does not allow presidential candidate whose parents were born outside Zambia. President Barack Obama yesterday led the international condolences while urging the Southern African nation to conduct a peaceful constitutional transition of power. There has been significant mobilization of international personnel in West Africa whose efforts are starting to pay off. This according to head of the UN mission for Ebola emergency response, Anthony Banbury. He held a joint press conference with the U.S. ambassador to the United States, Samantha Power, in Accra, Ghana, after visiting Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia. A campaign to stop children from joining the military has been launched in South Sudan by the country's government and the United Nations. 
Called Children Not Soldiers, the campaign aims to end the recruitment of minors by government security forces and armed conflict by the end of 2016. South Sudanese Minister of Defense Kol Manyang Juk says children should be learning how to read and write, not carry weapons. Last June, the government recommitted to an action plan which calls for measures to make its army free of child soldiers. Stephanie Kutrix reports. The UN reported that the government has already begun issuing orders to all army commanders to stop deploying children. Meanwhile, detailed plans and activities for ex-child soldiers are being organized by the UN, including psychosocial services and vocational training to allow them to resume life in their communities. Six other countries are also part of the Children Not Soldiers campaign. They are Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Myanmar, Somalia, Sudan and Yemen. South Africa's government spokesperson Pumla Williams says there's still no certainty when the bodies of 81 South Africans killed in the church building collapse in Nigeria will be brought back home. 115 people, including 80 South Africans, died when a guest house belonging to televangelist TB Joshua collapsed in Lagos on September the 12th. Williams says Nigerian authorities have confirmed they are doing their best to speed up the process of, confer- of confirming the identities of the 115 bodies. Nigeria has appointed a laboratory in Stellenbosch in South Africa's Western Cape province to assist with DNA testing. Williams says government is as anxious as the families. We think it is a long time that the families have been kept in suspense and also as us as government. So we are all anxious to get this work done and bringing these bodies back home so that the families can get closure. Unfortunately, we are entirely dependent on the verification process being finalized uh, through the laboratory. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. Zambians are in mourning following the death of their president, Michael Sata. 77-year-old Sata died at a London hospital on Tuesday night after suffering from an undisclosed illness. His wife and his son were by his side when he died. Under the Zambian constitution, the country will have to hold elections within 90 days of the president's death. Busi Chimombe filed this report. Tributes and condolences from the continent and abroad are pouring in for the late president. He is the second Zambian president to die while in office. President Jacob Zuma shared in the grief of the neighboring country. International Relations spokesperson Clayson Munyela. President Jacob Zuma has learned with sadness uh, the news of the passing on of the president of Zambia, Michael Sata. Uh, president Jacob Zuma has sent uh, a message of condolences to the government and the people of Zambia following uh, the passing on of President Sata saying the thoughts and prayers of South Africans are with the people of Zambia during this very difficult time. Sata, nicknamed King Cobra for his sharp tongue, was regarded as a fighter and resilient leader. He stood for the Zambian presidency in 2006 and 2008, but was only third time lucky in 2011. He won against the movement for multi-party democracy candidate Rupia Banda. Banda's party had been in power for 10 years. Rumors of his illness started earlier this year, intensifying when he failed to make a scheduled speech to the United Nations General Assembly. 
Then his illness became apparent when he was unable to attend his country's 50 years of independence celebration earlier this month. Sata was last seen in public in mid-September. President of Zambia's Law Society, George Chisango, says Sata was popular among Zambians and they will miss him. Well, I think people have genuinely been uh, uh, wishing the president well. And I, I think everybody has been wanting for this president to recover. Uh, I, I think purely because of how he's been uh, carrying out his, his, his development agenda for the nation. Of course, there have been challenges here and there regarding especially governance and uh, the constitutional making process. But in terms of other deliverables that he was engaged in, people were quite happy that he was doing quite well and they would have wanted him to recover. Sata's deputy, Guy Scott, is currently the acting president. However, Zambia's High Commissioner to South Africa, Muyemba Chukonde, says Scott cannot stand for the presidency due to a clause in the Zambian constitution that stipulates that to be eligible, both parents of the candidate must be of Zambian origin. The constitution says that uh, within the period after the demise of the president in, uh, in the incumbent, the vice president takes, takes off office uh, as a sitting in. So at the moment, uh, Vice President Guy Scott is sitting in, even though uh, on the current uh, constitution he's not eligible to stand, but he's eligible to, to caretake. Chisango, however, contradicts this. He quotes the 1996 Supreme Court ruling. Court ruled that regardless of who then-President Frederick Chuluba's father was or where he was born, he was still a legitimate head of state, as he was a citizen of the Republic of Zambia. We have looked at the Constitution and we've looked at the law, and in fact we've looked at one Supreme Court decision where the, 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 the ruling of the court suggests that a person such as the current vice president qualifies to stand for election to the office of the president in Zambia. The Supreme Court in that matter decided that anybody who was you know, a national of the Lord of Asia who became a national of Zambia on independence, which is where Despite these different interpretations, Chisango believes it is unlikely that there will be a power struggle in Zambia following Sata's death. Details of his funeral are yet to be announced. And that report by Busi Chimombe. Somalia is facing immense challenges as it emerges from two decades of civil war and recurrent droughts, according to the United Nations. The UN Secretary General visited the Horn of Africa country on Wednesday to pledge support for its transition to democracy and to promote security and development in the region. Ban Ki-moon was joined by the World Bank President Jim Yong King. Priscilla Lacombe asked the UN's Alim Sadiq, who's based in Somalia, about the visit. The delegation had two very important messages for the people and the government of Somalia. First of all, they recognize that the political, governance, security and development challenges that Somalia faces are immense. And they all underlined their commitment in helping Somalia to address these very important issues. The second message the delegation had was that they were very confident that Somalia consolidate the progress that has been made in recent years and that there is much to build upon. They highlighted the fact that many of the indicators here in Somalia are finally pointing in the right direction. In fact, the Secretary General made reference to the fact that Somalia is at last waking up slowly from a long nightmare. There is much for Somalia to do. This is a pivotal time for the country. Al-Shabaab's power is declining, but it's not gone. 
The Secretary General congratulated the Somali National Army and AMISOC, the African Union forces, for the advances and the contributions that they are making to peace and stability in Somalia. And the Secretary General highlighted the importance now of delivering basic services in the areas that have been liberated from Al-Shabaab's influence. Were there any financial commitment made by the Secretary General or uh, announcement of any partnership? I understand that the World Bank has made a number of commitments, but the commitments of the Secretary General and of the World Bank here in Somalia are long-term commitments. This is not just about a one-day visit. We are here on the ground working hand-in-hand with the Somali people to address some of the key issues that they face. Every day we are working here to help improve the security situation, to rebuild the state institution, so that finally the Somalis can take full control and full responsibility for building peace and stability for their own people. We know that the Secretary General is now visiting the refugee camp of Dadaab in Kenya. Is there any hope, knowing that Somalia is now on the right track in the transition phase, that Somalian refugees in Dadaab will eventually return to Somalia? Well, the Secretary General certainly highlighted the fact that the key indicators for Somalia are now pointing in the right direction, and that is encouraging, and that's something that we all welcome. Now, with the refugees, many refugees have already returned to Somalia, and they are playing an important role in helping to rebuild this country after so many decades of war. Now, the refugees that remain outside of the country, we would like to see them return, but their return has to be voluntary, And it has to be at a pace where Somalia is able to absorb the returnees and provide them with the basic life support systems that everybody needs, including schools, hospitals, food, etc. All of these must be in place for those refugees who do return. And that was Alim Sadiq from the UN office in Somalia talking to Priscilla Lacombe. A small village in Guinea is going down in history as ground zero for the Ebola epidemic. The virus is believed to have started in the densely forested area of Meliandu, according to the UN Children's Fund UNICEF. The area borders Sierra Leone and Liberia, two other West African countries where the outbreak has been described as persistent and widespread. Jocelyn Sambira reports. Emil Wamuno was just two years old when he fell ill with a mysterious disease that gave him a fever, nausea, and black stools. Only three months later would the World Health Organization, or WHO, determine that he had Ebola. His death followed that of his four-year-old sister and his mother, leaving behind Etienne, a grieving father and husband. Before my two children, Emily and Philomena, died, They were always playing with a ball. She liked to carry the baby on her back, and they liked finding food to eat. Back then, all the children had food to eat. From the Wamuno family, the disease spread, and in just four months, there were 21 freshly marked graves in the village. Meliandu village is located in what is known as the Ebola outbreak's hot zone. It's a triangle-shaped forested area where the borders of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia converge. Many of the villagers have panicked and fled, said Fasu Isidor Lama, the UNICEF child protection officer. 
The impact of Ebola on the population is so serious that children and women are the most affected. We notice that this crisis, uh, which is almost a humanitarian catastrophe, makes people flee the villages, abandon their families and their children. They reject the infected children as well as family members. The UN has developed a plan to rid Guinea and its two neighbors of the disease. By December 1st, the goal is for 70% of Ebola cases to be treated and 70% of burials to be carried out safely by trained and equipped teams. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Samantha Power, who's in the region to witness firsthand the Ebola response, said implementation now is the key. She said Ebola treatment units, or ETUs, for both foreign and local health workers would be set up in the coming weeks, as well as community care centers. The plan is right. The resources are flowing in. It's implementation now that is the key. And the only results that matter are not how many ETUs you have or how many beds or how many health workers. It's whether or not Ebola ends not only in Liberia, but in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. Since April this year, there have been no new cases reported in Meliandu. The community now knows how to identify the systems and avoid its spread. As for Etienne, the father of Emile, or patient zero, all he has left is faded photographs of his son and his family. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka, na unai. Widespread looting and insecurity in the Central African Republic have taken a heavy toll on crops, livestock and fishing. This is according to a new joint assessment by the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, and the World Food Programme, WFP. The assessment found significant declines in agricultural production in the wake of the crisis, which caused massive displacements and drove thousands of people fleeing across the borders. For more on this, Jane Matebula spoke to Alessandro Constantino, country monitor, working with the Trade and Markets Division with FAO in Rome. Central African Republic is facing an unprecedented political and military security crisis since December 2012. This crisis is affecting the whole country, the whole economy. And since agriculture is the backbone of the economy of the country, it accounts for more than half of the national GDP, a mission to assess the status of the agricultural sector and of the food security in the country was deemed essential. And where did you go? Who did you meet with? In the capital, Bangui, we met with representatives of international organizations, with government officials, and then during fieldwork in agricultural areas, we met with farmers, and in markets, we met with sellers and consumers as well. Describe the city for me a little bit. Bangui is a very dark place as of late, both from an actual point of view and rhetorically. Almost everybody we met has been involved by this crisis, which is so widespread that involved 
people, no matter their location, their wealth, their social strata. And they not only suffered from the consequences of what they lost, they lost property, they lost income, many lost their lives, many lost relatives. But the thing that is really striking is that people live in fear of what even worse may happen. So what does it look like in the agricultural sectors on the farms? The situation is serious as well. Farmers suffered from lootings, from damage to crops and to stocks, and maybe an even worse a negative factor was the insecurity because farmers were afraid to go to their fields. Did you have a chance to speak with anyone? Yes, of course. Probably the most valuable part was the fieldwork itself. And we organized no less than 170 focus group discussions with the help of, of the government and of seven international and national NGOs. And what were people saying? The people said that the situation was very bleak because they live in fear of what may happen and they have been very happy to see the results of FAO work because the decline in agricultural production in 2014 was was significant. But we observed a marginal increase from the 2013 crop. And this is partly because FAO made a huge effort to support agricultural production. What has come from the political instability in the country is in fact a very dire situation, as you just described. And the figures in the report are pretty staggering. To highlight a few, crop production is 58% lower than the average before the crisis. Livestock numbers are estimated to be down as much as 77% compared to levels before the crisis. Food reserves in rural areas are around 40 to 50% lower than average because of these reoccurring raids. And prices of staple food have increased by 30 to 70%. How are people in particularly vulnerable areas feeding themselves? They are going to great lengths to try and assure something to eat, not just for them, but most importantly for their children. One of the most used coping strategy was shifting production towards cassava because basically cassava being a root is more difficult in times of insecurity to be looted and damaged because it rests under the ground and it needs less field attendance than cereals and other crops. But there are downsides. Indeed, cassava is not very nutritious and this has to be coupled with a drastic reduction in uh, animal proteins intake because there has been a sharp decrease also in meat and fish supply. And so we are observing a dietary diversification decrease. And this causes obviously concerns about malnutrition in the long term. There are other negative factors as if there had not been enough. For example, to try and get some money to buy food. People who do not have access to fields or people who live in the city or people that are displaced, they, for example, have to recur to selling charcoal and wood. 
This in turn causes deforestation. We witnessed with our own eyes areas in which there were logs everywhere, entire swaths of forests seem to have disappeared in recent months. And this is not only a damage to the environment, this in turn is a damage to food security, because in that country people rely very much on forest products. So now that the initial assessment is complete, what is to be expected in the coming months? The CFSAM was not an isolated exercise. It has been conceived in the framework of a multi-assessment approach. Indeed, the emergency food security assessment by WFP and the integrated food security phase classification, which is a multi-agency initiative but technically led by FAO, are currently ongoing together with the results of the CFSAM, will be important inputs in turn for the Strategic Response Plan 2015, which will outline all the humanitarian intervention next year. That was Alessandro Constantino, a country monitor working with the Trade and Markets Division with Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome, and he was talking to Sandra Ferrari. The suspension of the BBC's local radio service in Rwanda is not only illogical, but illegal too. This is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. This follows news that Rwandan authorities suspended the service after BBC aired a documentary that questioned official accounts of the 1994 genocide. The Rwanda Utilities Regulatory Authority have accused the BBC of rewriting Rwandan history. For more on this, Selina Dobong spoke to Tom Rhodes, a consultant with the Committee to Protect Journalists. The documentary is a bit controversial, uh, especially among the locals there, because it questions who the victims were during the 1994 genocide. And, and many, both local and international individuals, have been up in arms about the documentary. But with that aside, I mean, uh, my, my main concern is the, the procedure and the target of the censorship conducted by the Rwandan government. Rwanda passed a very good law last year in 2013, uh, which introduced an independent regulator, which has the mandate to, to regulate the media. So in that sense, it was illegal because the government just simply closed down the Kenya Rwanda service without any uh, adherence to the the media regulator. And I found it rather illogical in the sense that they closed down the BBC Kenya Rwanda service. This is a vernacular language that's broadcasted nationally. One of the few local language national news broadcasters in the country. And yet the, the documentary was a television documentary done on the BBC too. So... Many local journalists that I spoke to just couldn't quite understand why would you target a radio service which had nothing to do with the documentary instead of the BBC television. In fact, Mr. Rhodes, the head of the Rwanda Media Commission, which is the independent regulator that you just spoke about, shares your sentiments saying that the government did overstep its mandate. This is Mr. Fred Muvunyi. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, Fred uh, was appointed um, last year as the head of the Rwanda Media Commission. And, you know, again, his, his sentiments are very similar to many others within Kigali, uh, the journalist in Kigali. And he, he had his own issues and concerns about the BBC documentary. 
But despite those concerns, he, he still believes that the, the way that they closed down the uh, BBC um, vernacular service is wrong. Let's talk about the suspicion that the service was deliberately targeted. In your blog, you say that a public criticism of the service took place long before the documentary was released. And in fact, this is not the first time that the service was suspended. It was suspended before in 2009. In your view, what have you gathered to be the reasons and the motivations the service was suspended? Yeah, thanks. I mean... um you know, I, I should add this is primarily speculation. You know, I, I can't say this with 100% proof, but what my colleagues tell me on the ground in Kigali and what we've been monitoring for quite some time is that, uh, you know, the BBC Kenya Rwanda Great Lakes Service is sometimes a thorn in the side for the Rwandan government because they've exposed some, uh, you know, human rights violations and, and they have the capacity and ability to circulate that news to all corners of, of Rwanda. I mean, you know, when, when you go to Kigali, for example, you, you'll find many uh, English speakers and, and more French speakers. But when you get out to the rural areas, you know, there are people who, who only speak Kenya Rwandan, and, and therefore the, the news service is a, sort of a lifeline for them and, and that much more influential. And given that, that this is such a, a very important source of information and news, what impact has this had on the people who rely on this new service? Well, it created a vacuum of, of information for, uh, you know, a large swath of the population in, in uh, Rwanda. No, I, I, I wouldn't say that, it's, you know, maybe people in Kigali are not, not uh, affected as much because there's a plethora of newspapers and and other media houses available to them. But, you know, really more of the ones outside of the major towns, I think this can have a, a significant impact. And that was Tom Rhodes, a consultant of the Committee to Protect Journalists, on the line from Nairobi and Kenya, talking to Selina Dobon. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. The SADC Troika Ministerial Meeting to assist the state of diplomatic mediation process in Lesotho in South Africa's capital Pretoria today. Zambia is today holding a second day of mourning for President Michael Sutter, who died in a London hospital on Tuesday. And a significant mobilization of international personnel in West Africa's Ebola-affected countries is starting to pay off. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. 
Despite the Ebola outbreak challenging the movement of people, especially from West African countries, more than 4,000 delegates from around the world are expected to attend the 6th World Social Forum for Migrations in South Africa. Taking place at the country's University of Johannesburg, this historical event comes to African soil for the first time. It is scheduled for early December when delegates will discuss for four days different themes of migration trends, social cohesion and how to counteract xenophobia and human trafficking. For more on the event, here's the Deputy Chairman of the World Social Forum, Mark Bafu. The World Social Forum on Migration this is the sixth edition and uh, the past six edition it was realized that the participation of the African continent was very poor. So we are glad to announce that uh, it will happen here in Africa and in South Africa, but we want the African continent to that's why we are glad to have the Channel Africa helping us to raise uh, awareness. We'll be talking broadly about migration, migration south-south, migration south-north, the challenges that the people are facing when crossing borders, the challenges that people are facing when they are in the different countries. Because people are not aware about these challenges. Well, if you take the example of South Africa, the current immigration law, people are not aware about what's happening. If you go to Europe, to the immigration law, people are aware about what's happening. So we want to use this platform to raise awareness about migration and also making some suggestions for different governments to change policies. Now, Mark, with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, there have been challenges on the movements of people, especially those from that region. So are there concerns for delegates who will be coming from West Africa? Okay, what we'll be doing, and that is uh, in discussion currently, is that, uh, yes, we are aware that there is a challenge, the breakaway of Ebola in West Africa. We are organizing ourselves to work very closely with uh, the Department of Health for the screening purposes of delegates will be coming from uh, that part of the continent. We don't want the forum to become a threat to South Africa. We are aware of what is happening and uh, we, we are working around that. Yeah. Now, Mark, can you give us an idea of the keynote speakers expected to attend and um, some of the organizations represented? Okay, the keynote speaker identified currently is Vagi uh, of Kosatu, who, who is our keynote speaker. We will be having the mayor of Johannesburg, Councillor Pachtao, who will be addressing our delegates. We have the former minister, Jen Naidu, who will be addressing our delegate at the closing. And uh, currently we are working very, very closely with the African Delphi Council also to have artists coming, but there we are inviting the Minister of Art and Culture as well as the Premier of Houghton. And finally, what's expected to come out of this World Social Forum for Migrations? We won't be able to know until the forum happens, but the outcome will be some suggestions 
to approach government for policy change because currently the policies are existing but either those policies are not helping us, are not helping mobility issues, are not helping migration issues. When we're talking about migration issues, we're talking about uh, internal migration as well as international migration. Mobility is from one point to another. People are not aware that uh, when you're talking about migrants, you might even talk about uh, somebody moving from Mpopo uh, to Johannesburg and vice versa. Uh, when you're talking about uh, mobility, the free movement of people and goods, those are the issues that we will be discussing about during the forum. And uh, we will uh, compile the outcome and uh, approach different governments around the, the globe as a suggestion for them to change the existing policies. And that was Mark Bafu, Deputy Chairman of the World Social Forum on the line to Channel Africa's Jane Matebula. Southern African Development Community's Executive Secretary, Dr. Ster Khomena Lawrence Tax, is on a mission to ensure that the regional body is about the people and develops economically. SADC has recently scored some diplomatic victories in stabilizing the problem-prone Lesotho and free and fair general elections in Mozambique and Botswana. The regional body has remained mum on complaints of human rights abuses in Swaziland. But Tax says from where she stands, Swaziland is democratic. Chabankosi sat down with the region's first woman executive secretary and filed this report. One year into the job, Dr. Stegomina Tex has identified priorities for the region's 15 member states. She is championing free movement of goods and people in the region to boost its economic profile. Sadaka is a stable regional configuration and uh, stable in a number of sense that uh, in terms of peace, security and political stability, I think we are, uh, we are among the regions which are admired worldwide. But uh, economically, we are also trying as much as possible to integrate economically. Maybe that is a, a challenging area because when you talk with economic integration, there are a number of issues which you, you, lo- you need to look into. But again, the impact of economic integration takes time. SADC has more than 30 legal binding protocols that deal with a wide range of issues to strengthen free trade in the region and its bargaining power in international forums. But as Tex observes, these have to be balanced carefully with each country's economic, political and security profile. Free movement of a person is uh, one of the things which uh, we have been uh, discussing about and uh, we have removed, uh, certain member states have removed uh, visa requirements for, in, for different uh, countries. And uh, even when you have a regime which is completely free of a uh, visa, still there are issues which uh, member states have the right to, to do. Because visa, it is about facilitating movement of persons. It's about facilitating business, but also it's about uh, you have to consider that there are security-related uh, issues. Dr. Tex's fate is interlinked with SADC. She was born in Tanzania in July 1960, at the time when most African states were gaining their independence. She studied towards a PhD in international development and a master's degree in policy management. 
She worked as a permanent secretary in Tanzania and also lectured on international negotiation techniques, techniques she will need to fight fires that often erupt in the region. Lesotho is currently under mediation. The battle to rid the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo of rebels continues, while Swaziland remains free of any scrutiny from the regional body, despite outcries from the opposition parties and journalists over human rights abuses. But Tex believes that Swaziland is being treated unfairly. Why do you think that there is no, there's no democracy in Swaziland? Is it because it's under, under different uh, dispensation? Because democracy is about uh, giving people the right they need as a democratic country. So it is very difficult for me to comment because I am not seeing that there is no democracy in Swaziland. Tex says SADC is supposed to be private sector driven and people centered. But most citizens see it as just a gathering of regional heads of state without any benefit to them. The regional bloc also has to deal with some of its members who hold dual membership in other trade bodies. But it is Swaziland that will perhaps test Texas' diplomatic abilities as calls for reform grow louder. Tex says hers is to take a cue from ordinary citizens. You know, democracy is about people, and the people, they have to demand for their right. So if Switzerland, they have issues, obviously they'll bring their issues on the table. So we have not had any, any complaints from Switzerland, and then we'll wait and, and see if they, there's need for us to intervene, we'll do so. We intervene because uh, one thing which also we should uh, be aware of is that uh, as SADC, we, we respect sovereignty of our member states and we respect the constitutions of our member states. So Switzerland has the, her own constitution, and we respect the constitution of Switzerland. SADC Executive Secretary Dr. Stegomena Lawrence Tax, ending that report by Schabankosi. The search for South Africa's Bafana Bafana and Orlando Pirates Captain Senzo Mewa's killers is continuing. Police are yet to arrest anyone for the murder on Sunday evening. On Tuesday, police released a 3D identikit of two of the three suspects. The drawings were compiled with the aid of Mewa's girlfriend, singer Kelly Kumalo. Mewa was shot and killed at Kumalo's home in Forslerust, east of Johannesburg. Nelly Swamavundla has the grieving father of murdered Bafana Bafana captain and goalkeeper Senzo Meiwa has for the first time since the death of his son on Sunday publicly voiced anger at the relationship his son had with musician girlfriend Kelly Kumalo. The Meiwa family says Afropop star and mother of his child Kumalo is not welcome at their home. The family has been unhappy about the relationship between Senzo and Kumalo and describes her as the one to blame for disrupting the relationship between him and his wife Mandisa. The family is also angered by the fact that Meiwa was killed at Kumalo's house. She's not to come at all. She must even come around here because I don't need her. Listen, that is why my Senzo is very the way it is now. And he is dead. Police spokesperson Neville Malila says investigations are continuing. We haven't managed to arrest anyone for the same murder. We are just interviewing people. The investigation is going well. Before we released the identity, we had information that came through from the community, but we've noted that there was a flood 
in information that we receive after we release the identities to the community. And we're working through those bits and pieces of information. And we hope it will ultimately lead to the arrest of the suspect. A multidisciplinary task team is still on the hunt for the suspected killers. Witnesses say two men entered the home of his on-and-off girlfriend, Kumalo, and demanded cell phones, while a third suspect waited outside. It is understood that Kumalo sat with police artists, describing the men she sought to help in the search. Professor Rodolph Zinn from the Department of Police Practice at UNISA says, while identity kits are useful, they are not always accurate. One needs to understand clearly it's only an investigative aid. It would assist the police in identifying the perpetrator, but it cannot serve as evidence in court. And what research has shown internationally that in many of these cases, there is unfortunately not a very good resemblance then with the actual face of the perpetrator. Professor Zinn says there are different systems used to compile identity kits. Uh, lots of, of computer systems and even manual systems that the police can use. They would, for example, identify first on the eyes of the person and then they put a whole data bank of just the eyes of people, pictures of eyes that's been taken, and they would put that into the identity kit and then, for example, concentrate on the ears of the person and slowly but surely build up a, a proper image of what this perpetrator looked like. Twitter and Facebook have been abuzz with people drawing comparisons with popular South African and international personalities to the identity kits released by the police. Professor Zen cautions the public to be extra vigilant when they think they have identified the suspect. It's important for the public to understand that should the police issue an identity kit and they think they might know the perpetrator, not to just accept the fact that it is the same person. There's a a very high probability that it might not be the, the correct perpetrator. The police are appealing to the community to come forward with information that can assist them in finding the perpetrators. 250,000 rand will be rewarded to anyone who can provide any information which could lead to arrests. I'm Nelly Somavundla in Johannesburg. It is 8.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuko. Thanks, Balungile. The consortiums of foreign energy firms have signed contracts for gas exploration in Algeria. In the first such deals since the deadly attack on a gas plant in the Sahara last year, Algeria's hydrocarbons agency, ELNAF, signed two contracts with a consortium formed by Enel of Italy and Emirati firm Dragon Oil for blocks in eastern and western regions of the Sahara. A third contract was signed with Norway's Stat Oil and British Dutch firm Shell or a block in Eastern Sahara, while Repsol of Spain and Shell have formed a consortium for Obergazol in the north. The first day of the BRICS Expo, an investor conference, began in Kimberley in South Africa's Northern Cape Province with the delegates making presentations on how long-lasting relations can be harnessed. About 1,000 local and international delegates are attending the three-day conference. Reginald Vidboy reports. 
The Northern Cape has its own version of the Big Five, which includes its rich mineral deposits, tourism, the square kilometre array, hydro and solar power developments and a long coastline with untapped potential. International delegates are using the opportunity to explore what the Northern Cape has to offer. This international event has been divided into three areas, trade, tourism and the investment expo. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has warned that load shedding could be on the cuts if electricity is not used sparingly. Earlier, the power utility issued a warning that power supply was severely constrained and would remain so for the rest of the week because of technical problems. The power utility says it has alerted about 140 key industrial customers and ordered them to reduce their load by a minimum of 10%. ESCOM's spokesperson is Andrew Ettinger. We certainly are constrained, both for tonight as well as tomorrow night. Between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m., our reserve margins will be virtually zero. That does mean that we're vulnerable. If we did pick up additional problems, we might need to implement load shedding as a last resort. But at the moment, the system is stable, so certainly not a crisis. Uh, If we do pick up additional technical problems and if we do see that the reserve margin is is, uh, heading to below zero, our system operator will implement load shedding. The declining affordability position of South African consumers to land a bond or to buy a home is the result of soaring living costs. Chief Executive Officer of Uber, Ray Sedaya, says the banks are not necessarily tightening their lending strings. He says the banks haven't really changed anything, adding they are probably looking for more business since home loans is quite a profitable part of their business. Dyer has pointed out that the problem is that consumers are failing to meet affordability assessment thresholds. Affordability assessment is a process to determine whether consumers can service their loan repayments. WhatsApp founders Jan Combe and Brian Acton have received 116 million shares of Facebook stock currently worth nearly $9 billion when they sold their mobile messaging service to the social networking leader earlier this month. The breakdown of the big winners in Facebook's $22 billion acquisition emerged yesterday in a regulatory filing. Comb reaped the biggest jackpot with 76.4 million Facebook shares now worth $5.8 billion. That makes him Facebook's fourth-largest stockholder, behind company CEO Mark Zuckerberg and two mutual funds, Fidelity Management and Vanguard. Financial indicators at the Sawa. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.86 South African Rand, 8.94 Botswana Pula, 6.34 in Zambia, 0.62 to the British Pound, 0.79 to the Euro. Gold, $1212. Platinum, $1253 an ounce. Brand crude, $87.05 a barrel. They'd normally say long pockets, short arms. Short arms, long pockets. Economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. A sports update up next with Tabiso Ndema.
Thanks, Lulu, and good morning once again to sports fans. Starting with rugby news, Springbok coach Heineck Meyer has stressed the importance of the North Hemisphere Tour to maintain a winning momentum. Meyer says the tour will provide his team with a chance to get familiar with wet conditions and for fringe players to prove their capabilities ahead of next year's World Cup. The box will face Six Nations Champions Ireland in their first test on tour in two weeks' time. Tabo Daniels has more. At this time of the year, temperatures in South Africa are in the high 20s. But the conditions will be completely different when the box travels to Europe. It will be close to freezing point. And facing Ireland in their first clash won't be a walk in the park. I truly believe that uh, one of our things that we need to improve as a team is uh, in probably the whole South Africa is we don't play well in, in wet conditions uh, because we don't face it a lot. So even in the previous championship where three games was wet, and especially in New Zealand, the way we didn't want to move the ball, but we were not good enough and skillful enough to move it. With one eye on the World Cup next year, Mayor has highlighted the importance of continuity. It is unlikely that he will temper with his regular lineup, but some of the new charges could feature in their clash against Italy on the 22nd of November. On to swimming news. South African swimmer Chad Leclerc finished the penultimate leg of the FINA Swimming World Cup in Tokyo in pole position to claim the overall title. Leclerc added another gold to the two that he won on day one, giving him 24 in total for the year, equaling his personal best for a single season. Simon Burke has the story. Leclerc was beaten by the German Stefan Deibler in Beijing in the 100 meters butterfly in their last outing. And going into the Tokyo final, the South African was only the third fastest. Leclerc has the World Cup series in his sights, and with two golds on the first day, he's showing no signs of relenting. He won in a time of 48.95 seconds, half a body length and 1.29 seconds ahead of Deibler. It's his third gold at the meet and 24th of the series. The total thus far is just four off the record of 28 gold, a target that's within his reach with Singapore to come. Leclerc's closest challenger in the overall series is Daniel Goethe of Hungary. Goethe kept up the pressure with a gold in the 100 meters breaststroke. Miles Brown was a gold medal winner on day one in the 400 meters freestyle. He almost timed his charge to the tiles perfectly in the 200 meters free, but was pipped by Japan's Kosaki Hagano. Brown was 0.16 seconds off gold, adding a second silver to the South African contingent's hall in Tokyo. South Africans will go to a memorial service at the Standard Bank Arena in Johannesburg today to pay their final respects to three sporting figures who died within three days of each other. They are Olympic silver medalist Mbulayeni Molawuzi, Bafana Bafana captain Senzo Meiwa, and professional female boxer Pindile Mvelasi. Mbulayeni Molawuzi's former trainer, J.P. van der Merve, shares his memories of the fallen South African athletics icon. Malauti was a quiet, reserved person, not outspoken, had a very fine sense of humor, but um, strong-minded, hard-willed. I think he had a life philosophy of first is first and second is nowhere, and that is the way he approached everything. Um, I think the way that he raced, uh, you know, showing determination, sometimes even uh, not being in the physical shape that... Uh, was conducive for running good, but his mind was so strong that he could put it off on the day. 
The three will be buried in their respective hometowns this weekend. And wrapping it up, South African Football Players Union Media Officer Elvis Khobela says they are disappointed that the Premier Soccer League did not postpone this weekend matches. Khobela says the league should have postponed all matches to give Senzo Meyua's former teammates and other players an opportunity to also pay their last respects. It is very disappointing that the PSL decide to continue with their success we start on Friday. Uh, while then uh, South Africa has lost Bafana uh, Fana champion in Senzo Mayua. Uh, we feel and believe it is not okay. We didn't directly engage the PSL because we understand as African, as South African, we understand that when once when our one of our fallen hero has died, we believe that you know, all the games, whatever they did on the left hand side, they must also apply on the right hand side because they are players. People like Lebo Mukwena, who played with Senju Mayor for a very long time, is also complaining about these things. That you know, it is better that the PSL postpone on the games so that all my was teammates, former Pirates players, and his teammates at the national team to come and pay their last respect. Well, that's who supported this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, Somalia faces immense challenges as it emerges from two decades of civil war and Zambia mourns the death of President Michael Sata. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shah today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Sviso Mashiko and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Franco Lumumba with a song titled Mamu. Thank you.